Oh, great, I've got a slide. So, good morning. Um, if you're visiting today, we are currently working through the book of James together. Um, so, you might want to have it open to the passage. And um, this is a very challenging passage. And we are going to get to grips with some of the implications for us as individuals and as a church. Uh, But first, I'm just going to do a quick recap in case you haven't been here. So, so far, we have learned that James was a relation of Jesus's. He was an important figure in the early church. Um, And this epistle is a collection of what seem to be sermon notes uh, written to the diaspora of Jewish Christians who have been scattered by the persecution that ensued after the martyrdom of Stephen. And they would find it easy, kind of thrust into new places and going through these trials, to give in to the the temptation to keep their faith a private set of creeds, things that they just meditate on in their own heart. And throughout the letter, uh, James is continually encouraging the church to have a genuine and public and visible and embodied faith. Morag uh, spoke to us a couple of weeks ago, about the identity that comes into being as we listen to the word and put it into practice, and how James's definition of true religion particularly relates to the current crises in our world. And last week, um, I was downstairs with the kids, but I'm reliably informed that uh, Graham reminded us that each person is made in the image of God and how that knowledge transforms our view of ourselves and everyone else. And that brings us here to the second half of James 2, uh, this most famous and controversial of passages. So just quickly, can anyone tell me what tomorrow is? That's right! Tomorrow is the 499th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, as you all obviously knew. And um, I've got a picture here of Martin Luther. Um... (laughs) So, Luther, the incredibly significant reformer, he really struggled with the book of James because of this passage, Um, and he campaigned hard during the Reformation to have it taken out of the Bible um, because he worried that it contradicted the overall bent of Scripture towards the redeeming work of Christ. So he didn't want people getting the impression that we are somehow able to work our way into God's love. Now, if Luther were here this morning, I would say, Guten Morgen, Martin, um, take a seat, have a cup of tea, it's all going to be okay. So if upon hearing um, the second reading this morning, you felt this stab of anxiety about workspace salvation and legalism and trying to be good enough, please don't worry. Um, We're doing this together and it's all going to be fine. Right, firstly... Let us try and deal briefly with um, Luther's worry that James is somehow contradictory to Paul. Yeah, great, thanks. So, Paul uh, described James in the Bible as an esteemed pillar of the church, and James was one of those who agreed that Paul was being sent by God to the Gentiles with the gospel. Uh, Paul even writes about that conversation uh, in his typical manner, saying... All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So I see no disagreement between them there. And um, in fact, there are many parts of Paul's epistles that really resonate with this morning's passage. So, for example, Galatians 5, um, Paul writes, In Christ Jesus, 
neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Or in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And the, the opposite is true too. Often James will point his readers to God and not their own goodness as their assurance. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. These are all found in this epistle. James's exhortation to the church to express their faith, not just by bare assent to a set of propositions, but through loving action, is not out of whack with the rest of the New Testament. Okay? Everyone breathe. Now we can move on. So, um, if he's not saying that salvation is by works and that we have to earn God's love, what is James trying to tell the church? Uh, Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? What we translate as faith in this verse is a Greek word, it's pistis, and it shows up a lot of places um, in the New Testament. But James is giving us a definition specifically of saving faith, of what we've been calling flowering faith, not just any faith. This is a caring and practical epistle. We are being offered a way to stop worrying over whether our faith is just wishful thinking. We don't have to constantly quarrel with each other or compare ourselves to one another. We know our faith is genuine if it leads to loving action, if it produces character. I once knew a person who um, got up to give their testimony and proudly proclaimed at the beginning, I don't mind telling people I'm a Christian because becoming a Christian hasn't changed a thing about me, it's just what I believe. And I would respectfully argue that it is supposed to change you. We bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We draw near to Jesus and we slowly, falteringly, by the power of his spirit, begin to display love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All the things that belong to salvation. So, here is a simple illustration. Great. You're so on it with the slides. I'm loving it. Right. So, imagine if you came around to my house for tea, and I opened the door, and I was really excited, and you could tell there was something I really wanted to tell you, and eventually you were like, what are you so excited about? And I said, I've just been out and got this pet goldfish, and I'm really excited about it. Um, And I led you over to the bowl, and you looked into the bowl, and it was just kind of just floating, just floating upside down at the top of the water, just not moving. Um, And you would think, oh no, what am I going to say? And you might say very gently, Freya, I think your goldfish might be dead. And I would say, no, look at its skills. Look, it's got this, this swishy tail. It's all orange and it's got fins. I mean, of course it's a goldfish. And you'd say, yes, Freya, but... Um, there's no bubbles and it's floating upside down at the top of the water and you can see that little pile of fish flakes there where you've just been feeding it every day and it hasn't been eating I'm pretty sure your goldfish is dead that's one illustration 
Um, and you'll see in the passage that James gives his readers four illustrations of faith. He considers two of these to be examples of saving, flowering faith, and two of them to be uh, ineffectual, spurious faith. So first, got it? Great. Um, Abraham and the demons, I'm going to pair together. So verse 19, if you want to go there with me. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. James quotes the very words from the profession of faith which was recited morning and evening. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's where that you believe that there is one God comes from. But what good is knowing that and reciting it without any relationship to the God who is one? Even the demons, even the evil and chaotic powers understand God to be one. And it's that same Greek word. We can't even wriggle out of it with some Greek. It's pistusin, which is somewhat worrying. Uh, In contrast to the demons, we have Abraham. And it says, Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Abraham is the pinnacle of faith for many Jewish believers. Not because of what he professed, but because of his relationship with God. And how do we know that he believed God? How do we know that he believed what God had promised to him? Because he went up the mountain and he gave God Isaac. And how do we know that his faith was justified? That he trusted in the right person? Because he received Isaac back from God. His faith and his actions were working together seamlessly. We have more than the belief that God exists or the belief that God is one. We have peace with God through Christ, friendship with God through Christ. To know that he exists means little if we are not willing to receive his love or, to put it a better way, have him receive us. So if that uh, first pair of illustrations speaks powerfully of our relationship to God, uh, the second pair, so the person in verse 15 and Rahab, no, it's okay, you can go back. Go back, yeah. Um, Speaks most powerful to me about acts of mercy. The person who does not help their brother or sister in need um, is directly contrasted with Rahab. So Rahab, if you don't know the story, um, she protected Joshua's spies. Uh, She helped them escape their pursuers, even though they were her enemies. She was a Gentile. She was a woman. She was a prostitute. She was a marginalized person. And yet, she is brought into the royal line, one of the few women mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. Remember last week... Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? When we act like the person in verse 15, um, we are missing something of the embodied incarnate mercy of Christ. There is this hint of Gnosticism about it when we act super spiritual but we do not consider ourselves to have any responsibility for the physical needs of others. And don't mistake me, I'm not saying uh, that a good understanding of scripture and orthodoxy aren't important, because I think they are, but we don't want our orthodoxy 
to be impoverished by our apathy in living it out. Zacchaeus, from our gospel reading, um, he probably knew the law, but it was when he received Jesus into his home, when God's compassion came to him in the flesh, that he became repentant and then just and then generous. So the conclusion of these four illustrations is this. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Living faith seems to me to be a relationship. It seems to include showing mercy. We cannot cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse like that goldfish. So where does this leave us? Good. Um, I'm going to take a brief but important detour. Please bear with me. Um, If you are like me, this kind of sermon just leaves you full of anxiety. It makes you go out and strive really, really hard to be perfect and holy and completely ethical and grit your teeth for about three days. Uh, You add more to your to-do list. Uh, You get up earlier and earlier. Um, You just try harder. I know that I am supposed to speak and act according to the law that brings freedom. That's earlier in James. But so often, even though I know this, I still speak and act according um, to the idea that God will love me more or accept me more based on what I can accomplish for him. The danger is that I stand up here and say, faith without works is dead. And in your heads, you hear, do it all, be more. Be busier, achieve, perform, achieve, be better, be better. So listen very carefully to me now. God loves you, here and now, and as you are. You are much more to him than just what you can do for him. You might be desperate to be his servant, but he has called you friend, son, daughter, beloved. Miroslav Volf, the Croatian theologian, writes this. God is not a negotiator. God is a giver. No one can give anything to God in a way that obliges God to give in return. God gives so that we can become joyful givers. He includes us in the good work, not because he can't manage without us, but for the joy of it. For you, the message of this sermon might be to do less. It might be to examine the things you are doing and ask if they flow out of your love for God and others or whether you are doing them to try and distance yourself from feelings of self-loathing or insecurity or being uncertain how God feels towards you. If you are like that, if you have started seeing God like an exasperated line manager rather than a loving savior, take heart because I am like that too. And good news, because our salvation, our acceptance, is in Christ. It is a gift of God by grace, received through faith. And that loving, dynamic, reciprocal, continual relationship is productive of good works. Our sanctification is a slow and beautiful work of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 verse 5 says, Through the Spirit, we eagerly await, by faith, the righteousness for which we hope. Please nod if you're agreeing with me. Good. Okay, so, in the light of all that, maybe um, 
it is time for us to think about the steps we're going to take, the one step in this relationship that comes next. Um, It might be baptism. It might be confirmation. It might just be saying out loud to someone that you are Christian. Maybe when you hear people talk about Jesus, you feel this inexplicable stirring in your heart and you know you believe it and you know you love him, but you're afraid of taking the plunge. Maybe you have been hurt in relationships before. Well, my favorite philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, that's him on the screen, um, he worried a lot about a lot of things, and this was one of them. Um, And he came to this conclusion. If one wishes to escape the risk of belief, it is as if one wanted to know with certainty that he can swim before going in the water. There is only so much you can understand by looking at this relationship from the outside. At some point, you have to look at it from the inside. It might not make sense to you until you start doing it. Putting your trust in Jesus is like stretching out an empty hand towards God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Maybe the thing that God is nudging you towards is to express your faith in a life of mercy. Maybe that's a new idea to you. Social justice is inescapable in James's epistle. And I have been so encouraged uh, since coming to this church. There are so many ways in which St. John's is engaged with the call to justice. Maybe you were once satisfied with just showing up to church on a Sunday, and now you're bored and frustrated and you want more. It might be that you want to get involved in citizens. It might be that you want to get involved in food bank or in refugees welcome or whatever it is that your gifts and your passions are bringing you towards. And finally, more good news. We are not doing this alone. We are doing it as a worshipping community. We bear with one another's weakness We spur one another on to loving action, and we complement one another's gifts. Soon we will come uh, together to the communion table, and we will be invited to draw near, trusting and believing in Christ's great act of faithfulness. We will be asked to hold up our empty hands and receive, to eat and drink, and recreate the reconciliation that Christ has made for us. So when that time comes, come in all your weakness and your doubts and your inconsistency to the God of resurrection. Let us take that one step of faith all at once, all together. And may you know the kindness and love of God who has saved you not because of righteous things you have done, but because of his mercy. May you know the washing and rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom God has poured out on us generously. And may you, who have trusted in God, devote yourselves to doing what is good. Amen.